0: Part One of His Master's Voice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. This story was first published in Analog Magazine, March, nineteen sixty two. His Master's Voice by Randall Garrett. Part One. I'd been in Ravenhurst's office on the mountain-sized planetoid called Raven's Rest only twice before. The third time was no better. Shalimar Ravenhurst was one of the smartest operators in the belt. But when it came to personal relationships, he was utterly incompetent. He could make anyone dislike him without trying." When I entered the office, he was sitting behind his mahogany desk, his eyes focused on the operation he was going through with a wine-glass and a decanter. He didn't look up at me as he said, "'Sit down, Mr. Oak. Will you have some Madeira?' I decided I might as well observe the pleasantries. There was no point in my getting nasty until he did. "'Thank you, Mr. Ravenhurst, I will.' He kept his eyes focused on his work. It isn't easy to pour wine on a planetoid where the g-pull is measured in fractions of a centimeter per second squared. It moves slowly, like ropey molasses, but you have to be careful not to be fooled by that. The viscosity is just as low as ever, and if you pour it from any great height, it will go scooting right out of the glass again. The momentum it builds up is enough to make it splash right out again in a slow-motion gush, which gets it all over the place. Besides which, even if it didn't splash, it would take so long to fall a few inches that you'd die of thirst waiting for it. Ravenhurst had evolved a technique from long years of practice. He tilted the glass and the bottle toward each other, their edges touching, like you do when you're trying to pour beer without putting a head on it. As soon as the wine wet the glass, the adhesive forces at work would pull more wine into the wine glass. To get capillary action on a low-G asteroid, you don't need a capillary by any means. The negative meniscus on the wine was something to see the first time you see it. You get the eerie feeling that the glass is spinning and throwing the wine up against the walls by centrifugal force. I took the glass he offered me. Careful, don't slosh. And sipped at it. Using squirt tubes would have been a hell of a lot easier and neater, but Ravenhorse liked to do things his way. He put the stopper back in the decanter, picked up his own glass, and sipped appreciatively. "'Not until he put it back down on the desk again did he raise his eyes "'and look at me for the first time since I'd come in. "'Mr. Oak, you have caused me considerable trouble.' "'I thought we'd hashed all that out, Mr. Ravenhurst,' I said, keeping my voice level. "'So had I. "'But it appears that there were more ramifications to your action than we had at first supposed.' His voice had the texture of heavy linseed oil. He waited, as if he expected me to make some reply to that. When I didn't, he sighed slightly and went on. I fear that you have inadvertently sabotaged McGuire. You were commissioned to prevent sabotage, Mr. Oak, and I'm afraid that you abrogated your contract. I continued to keep my voice calm. "'If you are trying to get back the fee you gave me, we can always take it to court. I don't think you'd win.' "'Mr. Oak?' he said heavily. "'I am not a fool, regardless of what your own impression may be. If I were trying to get back that fee I would hardly offer to pay you another one. I didn't think he was a fool.' You don't get into the managerial business and climb to the top and stay there unless you have brains. Ravenhurst was smart, all right. It was just that when it came to personal relationships, he wasn't very wise. Then stop all this yak about an abrogated contract and get to the point, I told him. I shall... I was merely trying to point out to you that it is through your own actions that I find myself in a very trying position, and that your sense of honor and ethics should induce you to rectify the damage. My honor and ethics are in fine shape,' I said. "'But my interpretation of the concepts might not be quite the same as yours. Get to the point.' He took another sip of Madeira. "'The roboticists at Viking tell me that, in order to prevent any further uh, sabotage by unauthorized persons, the MGYR-7 was constructed so that, after activation, the first man who addressed orders to it would thenceforth be considered its uh, master. "'As I understand it,' The problem of defining the term human being unambiguously to a robot is still unsolved. The roboticists felt that it would be much easier to define a single individual. That would prevent the issuing of conflicting orders to a robot, providing the single individual was careful in giving orders himself. Now, it appears that you, Mr. Oak, were the first man to speak to Maguire, after he had been activated. Is that correct? Is that question purely rhetorical? I asked him, putting on my best expression of innocent interest. Or are you losing your memory? I had explained all that to him two weeks before, when I brought McGuire and the girl here, so that Ravenhurst would have a chance to cover up what had really happened. My sarcasm didn't faze him in the least. Rhetorical it follows that you are the only man whose orders McGuire will obey. Your roboticists can change that, I said. This time I was giving him my version of genuine innocence. A man has to be a good actor to be a competent double agent, and I didn't want Ravenhurst to know that I knew a great deal more about the problem than he did. He shook his head, making his jowls wobble. "'No, they cannot. "'They realize now that there should be some way of making that change, "'but they fail to see that it would be necessary. "'Only by completely draining McGuire's memory banks "'and refilling them with new data can this bias be eliminated. "'Then why don't they do that?' "'There are two very good reasons,' he said. "'And there was a shade of anger in his tone.' In the first place, that sort of operation takes time, and it costs money. If we do that, we might as well go ahead and make the slight changes in structure necessary to incorporate some of the improvements that the roboticists now feel are necessary. In other words, they might as well go ahead and build the MGYR-8, which is precisely the thing I hired you to prevent. "'It seems you have a point there, Mr. Ravenhurst. "'He'd hired me because things were shaky at Viking. "'If he lost too much more money on the Maguire experiment, "'he stood a good chance of losing his position as manager. "'If that happened, some of his other managerial contracts might be cancelled too. "'Things like that can begin to snowball.' and Ravenhurst might find himself out of the managerial business entirely. But, I went on, hasn't the additional wasted time already cost you money? It has. I was reluctant to call you in again. Understandably enough, I think. Perfectly. It's mutual. He ignored me. I even considered going through the rebuilding work, now that we have traced down the source of failure of the first six models. Unfortunately, that isn't feasible either. He scowled at me. It seems, he went on, that McGuire refuses to allow his brain to be tampered with. The self-preservation instinct has come to the fore.' He has refused to let the technicians and roboticists enter his hull, and he has even threatened to take off and leave Cersei's if any further attempts are made to uh, disrupt his thinking processes. "'I can't say that I blame him,' I said. "'What do you want me to do? Go to Cersei's and tell him to submit like a good boy?' "'It is too late for that, Mr. Oak.' Viking cannot stand any more of that kind of drain on its financial resources. I have been banking on the Maguire-type ships to put Viking spacecraft ahead of every other spacecraft company in the system." He looked suddenly very grim and very determined. Mr. Oak, I am certain that the robot ship is the answer to the transportation problems in the solar system, for the sake of every human being in the solar system, we must get the bugs out of McGuire. "'What's good for General Bullmoose is good for everybody,' I quoted to myself. I'd have said it out loud, but I was fairly certain that Shalimar Ravenhurst was not a student of the classics. "'Mr. Oak, I would like you to go to Cersei's and cooperate with the roboticists at Viking.' when the M-G-Y-R-8 is finally built. I want it to be the prototype for a fast, safe, functional robot spaceship that can be turned out commercially. You can be of great service, Mr. Oak. In other words, I've got you over a barrel. I don't deny it. You know what my fees are, Mr. Ravenhurst. That's what you'll be charged. I'll expect to be paid weekly." If Viking goes broke, I don't want to lose more than a week's pay. On the other hand, if the MGYR is successful, I will expect a substantial bonus. How much? Exactly half of the cost of rebuilding. Half what it would take to build a Model 8 right now, and taking a chance on there being no bugs in it. He considered that, looking grimmer than ever. Then he said, I will do it, on the condition that the bonus be paid off in installments, one each six months for three years, after the first successful commercial ship is built by Viking. My lawyer will nail you down on that wording, I said, but it's a deal. Is there anything else?" No. Then I think I'll leave for Circe before you break a blood vessel. "'You continue to amaze me, Mr. Oak,' he said. And the soft oiliness of his voice was the oil of vitriol. "'Your compassion for your fellow-man is a facet of your personality that I had not seen before. "'I shall welcome the opportunity to relax and allow my blood-pressure to subside.' I could almost see Shalimar Ravenhurst suddenly exploding and adding his own touch of color to the room. And on that gladsome thought I left. I let him have his small verbal triumph. If he'd known that I'd have taken on the job for almost nothing, he'd really have blown up. Ten minutes later I was in my vacuum suit, walking across the glaring, rough-polished rectangle of metal that was the landing field of Raven's Rest. The sun was near the zenith in the black, diamond-dusted sky, and the shadow of my flitter-boat stood out like an inkblot on a bridal gown I climbed in, started the engine, and released the magnetic anchor that held the little boat to the surface of the nickel-iron planetoid. I lifted her gently, worked her around until I was stationary in relation to the spinning planetoid, oriented myself against the stellar background, and headed toward the first blinker beacon. On my way to Ceres, for obvious economical reasons, it is impracticable to use full-sized spaceships in the belt. A flitterboat with a single gravito-inertial engine and the few necessities of life air, some water, and a very little food, still costs more than a Roll-Royce automobile does on earth, but there has to be some sort of individual transportation in the belt. They can't be used for any great distances, because a man can't stay in a back suit very long without getting uncomfortable. You have to hop from beacon to beacon, which means that your average velocity doesn't amount to much since you spend too much time accelerating and decelerating but a flitter boat is enough to get around the neighborhood in and that's all that's needed i got the gm-187 blinker in my sights ease the acceleration up to one g relax to watch the radar screen while i thought over my coming ordeal with mcguire testing spaceships robotic or any other kind is strictly not my business. The sign on the door of my office in New York says, Daniel Oak, Confidential Expediter. I'm hired to help other people get things done. Usually, if someone came to me with the problem of getting a spaceship test piloted, I'd simply dig up the best test pilot in the business, hire him for my client, and forget about everything but collecting my fee. But I couldn't have refused the case if I'd wanted to. I'd already been assigned to it by someone a lot more important than Shalimar Ravenhurst. Every schoolchild who has taken a course in government organization and function can tell you that the Political Survey Division is a branch of the System Census Bureau of the U.N. Government and that its job is to evaluate the political activities of various sub-governments all over the system. And every one of those poor tykes would be dead wrong. The political survey division does evaluate political activity, all right. But it is the secret service of the UN government. The vast majority of the system's citizens don't even know the government has a secret service. I happen to know only because I'm an agent of the political survey division. The PSD was vitally interested in the whole Maguire project. Robots of Maguire's complexity had been built before. The robot that runs the traffic patterns of the American eastern seaboard is just as capable as Maguire when it comes to handling a tremendous number of variables and making decisions on them. But that robot doesn't have to be given orders except in extreme emergencies. Keeping a few million cars moving and safe at the same time is actually pretty routine stuff for a robot. And a traffic robot isn't giving orders verbally. It is given any orders that may be necessary via teletype by a trained programming technician. Those orders are usually in reference to a change of routing due to repair work on the highways or the like. The robot itself can take care of such emergencies as bad weather or even an accident caused by the malfunctioning of an individual automobile. McGuire was different. In the first place, he was mobile. He was in command of a spaceship. In a sense, he was the spaceship, since it served him in a way that was analogous to the way a human body serves the human mind. And he wasn't in charge of millions of objects with a top velocity of hundred and fifty miles an hour. He was in charge of a single object that moved at velocities of thousands of miles per second. Nor did he have a set unmoving highway as his path. His paths were variable and led through the emptiness of space. Unforeseen emergencies can happen at any time in space, most of them having to do with the lives of passengers. A cargo ship would be somewhat less susceptible to such emergencies if there were no humans aboard. It doesn't matter much to a robot if he has no air in his hull. But with passengers aboard... There may be times when it would be necessary to give orders, fast. And that means verbal orders, orders that can be given anywhere in the ship and relayed immediately by microphone to the robot's brain. A man doesn't have time to run to a teletyper and type out orders when there's an emergency in space. This meant that McGuire had to understand English. And since there has to be feedback and communication— he had to be able to speak it as well. And that made McGuire more than somewhat difficult to deal with. For more than a century, roboticists had been trying to build Asimov's famous Three Laws of Robotics into a robot brain. First law, a robot shall not, either through action or inaction, allow harm to come to a human being. Second law, A robot shall obey the orders of a human being, except when such orders conflict with the first law. Third law. A robot shall strive to protect its own existence, except when this conflicts with the first or second law. Nobody has succeeded yet, because nobody has yet succeeded in defining the term human being in such a way that the logical mind of a robot can encompass the concept. A traffic robot is useful only because the definition has been rigidly narrowed down. As far as a traffic robot is concerned, human beings are the automobiles on its highways. Woe betide any poor sap who tries illegally to cross a robot-controlled highway on foot. The robot's only concern would be with the safety of the automobiles. And if the only way to avoid destruction of an automobile were to be by nudging the pedestrian aside with the fender, that's what would happen. And since its orders only come from one place, I suppose that a traffic robot thinks that the guy who uses that typer is an automobile. With the first six models of the Maguire ships, the roboticists attempted to build in the three laws exactly as stated, And the first six went insane. If one human being says jump left, and another says jump right, the robot is unable to evaluate which human being has given the more valid order. Feed enough confusing and conflicting data into a robot brain, and it can begin behaving in ways that, in a human being, would be called paranoia or schizophrenia or catatonia or what have you, depending on the symptoms. And an insane robot is fully as dangerous as an insane human being controlling the same mechanical equipment, if not more so. So the seventh model had been modified. The present McGuire's brain was impressed with slight modifications of the first and second laws. It is difficult to define a human being, It is much more difficult to define a responsible human being. One, in other words, who can be relied upon to give wise and proper orders to a robot, who can be relied upon not to drive the robot insane. The roboticists at Viking Spacecraft had decided to take another tack. Very well, they said. If we can't define all the members of a group— we can certainly define an individual. We'll pick one responsible person and Bill McGuire so that he will take orders only from that person. As it turned out, I was that person. Just substitute Daniel Oak for human being in the First and Second Laws, and you'll see how important I was to a certain spaceship named McGuire. When I finally caught the beam from Ceres and set my flitterboat down on the huge landing field that had been carved from the nickel-iron of the asteroid with a focused sunbeam, I was itchy with my own perspiration and groggy tired. I don't like riding in flitterboats, sitting on a bucket seat astride the drive-tube, like a witch on a broomstick, with nothing but a near-invisible transite hull between me and the stars all cooped up in a vac suit. Unlike driving a car, you can't pull a flitterboat over and take a nap. You have to wait until you hit the next beacon station. Ceres, the biggest rock in the belt, is a lot more than just a beacon station. Like Eros and a few others, it's a city in its own right. And except for the government reservation, Viking spacecraft owned Ceres, locked stock and mining rights. Part of the reason for Vikings' troubles was envy of that ownership. There were other companies in the belt that would like to get their hands on that plum, and there were those who were doing everything short of cutting throats to get it. The P.S.D. was afraid it might come to that, too, before very long. Ceres is 58 million cubic miles of nickel-iron, But nobody would cut her up for that. Nickel-iron is almost exactly as cheap as dirt on Earth. And considering shipping costs, Earth soil costs a great deal more than nickel-iron in the belt. But as an operations base, Ceres is second to none. Its surface gravity averages .0294 standard G as compared with Earth's .981 and that's enough to give a slight feeling of weight without unduly hampering the body with too much load. I weigh just under six pounds on Ceres, and after I'd been there a while, going back to Earth is a strain that takes a week to get used to. Kids that are brought up in the belt are forced to exercise in a room with a 1G spin on it at least an hour a day. They don't like it at first, but it keeps them from growing up with the strength of mice. And an adult with any sense takes a spin now and then, too. Traveling in a flitterboat will give you a 1G pull, all right, but you don't get much exercise. I parked my flitterboat in the space that had been assigned to me by landing control, and went over to the nearest airlock dome. After I'd cycled through and had shucked my vac-suit, I went into the inner room to find Colonel Brock waiting for me. "'Have a good trip, Oak?' he asked, trying to put a smile on his scarred, battered face. "'I got here alive, if that makes it a good flitterboat trip,' I said, taking his extended hand. "'That's the definition of a good trip,' he told me. Then the question was superfluous. "'Seriously, what I need is a bath and some sleep.' "'You'll get that. But first, let's go somewhere where we can talk. Want a drink?' "'I could use one, I guess. Your treat?' "'My treat,' he said. "'Come on.' I followed him out and down a ladder to a corridor that led north. By definition, any asteroid spins toward the east, and all directions follow from that, regardless of which way the axis may point. Colonel Harrington Brock was dressed in the black and gold Union suit that was the uniform of Ravenhurst's security guard. My own was a tasteful green, but some of the other people in the public corridor seemed to go for more flashiness. Besides silver and gold, there were shocking pinks and violent mauves with stripes and blazes of other colors. A crowd wearing skin-tight coveralls might shock the gentle people of Midwich on the Moor, England, but they are normal dress in the belt. You can't climb into a vac suit with bulky clothing on, and if you did, you'd hate yourself within an hour with a curse for every wrinkle that chafed your skin. And in the belt, you never know when you might have to get into a vac suit fast. In a safe area like the tunnels inside Ceres, there isn't much chance of losing air but there are places where no one but a fool would ever be more than ten seconds away from his vac-suit. I read an article by a psychologist a few months back, in which he claimed that the taste for loud colors in union suits was actually due to modesty. He claimed that the bright patterns drew attention to the colors themselves and away from the base the colors were laid over. The observer, he said, tends to see the color and pattern of the suit rather than the body it clings to so closely. Maybe he's right. I wouldn't know, not being a psychologist. I have spent summers in nudist resorts, though, and I never noticed anyone painting themselves with lavender and chartreuse checks. On the other hand, the people who go to nudist resorts are a self-screened group. So are the people who go to the belt, for that matter. But the type of screening is different. I'll just leave the problem in the hands of the psychologists and go on wearing my immodestly quiet, solid-color union suits. Brock pushed open the inch-thick metal door beneath a sign that said O'Banion's Bar, and I followed him in. We sat down at a table and ordered drinks when the waiter bustled over. A cop in uniform isn't supposed to drink, but Brock figures that the head of the security guard ought to be able to get away with the breach of his own rules. We had our drinks in front of us and our cigarettes lit, before Brock opened up with his troubles. "'Oak,' he said. "'I wanted to intercept you before you went to the plant, because I want you to know that there may be trouble.' "'Yeah? Uh, What kind?' Sometimes it's a pain to play ignorant. Thurston's outfit is trying to oust Ravenhurst from the managership of Iking and take over the job. Baedecker Metals and Mining Corporation, which is managed by Baedecker himself, wants to force Viking out of business so that BMM can take over Ceres for large scale processing of precious metals. "'Between the two of them, they're raising all sorts of minor hell around here, "'and it's liable to become major hell at any time. "'And we can't stand any hell or sabotage around this planetoid just now. "'Now, wait a minute,' I said, still playing ignorant. "'I thought we'd pretty well established that the sabotage of the McGuire series "'was Jack Ravenhurst's fault. "'She was the one who was driving them nuts.' "'Not Thurston's agents?' "'Perfectly true,' he said agreeably. "'We managed to block any attempts of sabotage by other company agents, "'even though it looked as though we hadn't for a while.' He chuckled wryly. <laughs> "'We went all out to keep the Maguires safe, "'and all the time the boss's daughter was giving them the works. "'Then he looked sharply at me. "'I covered that, of course.' No one in the security guard but me knows that Jack was responsible. Good, but what about the Thurston and Baedecker agents, then? He took a hefty slug of his drink. They're around all right. We have our eyes on the ones we know, but those outfits are as sharp as we are, and they may have a few agents here on Ceres that we know nothing about. So what does this have to do with me? He put his drink on the table. "'Oak, I want you to help me.' His onyx-brown eyes, only a shade darker than his skin, looked directly into my own. "'I know it isn't part of your assignment, and you know I can't afford to pay you anything near what you're worth. It will have to come out of my pocket, because I couldn't possibly justify it from operating funds.' Ravenhurst specifically told me that he doesn't want you messing around with the espionage and sabotage problem because he doesn't like your methods of operation. And you're going to go against his orders? I am. Ravenhurst is sore at you personally because you showed him that Jack was responsible for the Maguire sabotage. It's an irrational dislike, and I'm not going to let it interfere with my job. I'm going to protect Ravenhurst's interests to the best of my ability, and that means that I'll use the best of other people's abilities if I can. I grinned at him. The last I heard, you were sore at me for blatting it all over Ceres that Jacqueline Ravenhurst was missing when she sneaked aboard the Maguire. He nodded perfunctorily. I was. I still think you should have told me what you were up to. But you did it, and you got results that I'd been unable to get. I'm not going to let a momentary pique hang on as an irrational dislike. I like to think I have more sense than that. Thanks. There wasn't much else I could say. Now, I've got a little dough put away. It's not much. But I could offer you— I shook my head, cutting him off. Nope. "'Sorry, Bruck, for two reasons. "'In the first place there would be a conflict of interest. "'I'm working for Ravenhurst, and if he doesn't want me to work for you "'then it would be unethical for me to take the job. "'In the second place my fees are standardized. "'Oh, I can allow a certain amount of fluctuation. "'But I'm not a physician or a lawyer. "'My services are not necessary to the survival of the individual, "'except in very rare cases.' "'and those cases are generally arranged through a lawyer "'when it's a charity case. "'No, Colonel, I'm afraid I couldn't possibly work for you.' "'He thought that over for a long time. "'Finally he nodded his head very slowly. "'I see. Yeah, I get your point.' "'He scowled down at his drink. "'But,' I said, "'it would be a pleasure to work with you. He looked up quickly. How's that? Well, let's look at it this way. You can't hire me because I'm already working for Ravenhurst. I can't hire you because you're working for Ravenhurst. But since we may need each other, and since we're both working for Ravenhurst, there would be no conflict of interest if we cooperate. Or, to put it another way, I can't take money for any service I may render you, "'But you can pay off in services. "'Am I coming through?' "'His broad smile made the scars on his face fold in and deepen. "'Loud and clear. "'It's a deal!' "'I held up a hand, palm toward him. "'Ah, ah, ah, there's no deal involved. "'We're just old buddies helping each other. "'This is for friendship, not business.' I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Fair? Fair. Come on down to my office. I want to give you a head full of facts and figures. Will do. Uh, Let me finish my guzzle. End of Part One